All right, let's check in about Ruth. I wish we got to see this in the video. Um, I wish we got to see it in the video uh, so we could put it in perspective and maybe we can catch up on it last week, next week when I fix that or, or, or something. Um, but um, our workbook sort of had some interesting thoughts on, on sort of the beauty of the story and, and some of the values. And, and I'm curious to know, remember, there's no real right or wrong answers here. There are meanings, I think, that are life-giving, and there are meanings that are life-taking. And I think that's a criterion for knowing whether or not we're sort of on the right track as we have conversations with Scripture. But as you read Ruth, what did Ruth do for you? Are there objections you have? Are there moral pathways you feel like Ruth is guiding you to? Did God surprise you? Did the characters surprise you? I, this, this is what happens to me all the time. But I find myself, and, and it answers some of it in here for me, but my big question always kind of was, why, why did Ruth go? Like, was she just simply that good a person? Um, was her family horrible? <laughs> um, no, but for real. Yeah, you yeah. Know, um, was what she saw of God in, in the family she had married into such a magnet for her that she was willing to go um, with Naomi to find out to get closer to God, maybe? Because um, when, when you read it, I, I, I mean, obviously she was a good, patient, kind, loving woman. But Naomi was kind of, I mean, and she had a lot of reason to be. But Naomi was, was very unhappy. And so when you think about adding that to, it wasn't like, hey, let's go on an adventure together. You know, we're going to take this thing called life and kick it in the, you know. It was more like, to me, this is all just to me. Yeah, yeah. It was more like that was one more thing that would be added on to, okay, so I'm leaving everything I know. I'm, which women seem to have to do that a lot in the Bible. Go wherever someone tells me to go. And I'm going with somebody that's really kind of <coughs> negative and, and unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. So I always wondered what it actually was that made Ruth say, I'll do this. You know, um, and maybe it was just that her heart was purely that compassionate and loyal. I was always taught the story of Ruth uh, was was uh, usually wrapped around, for me, uh, the context it was presented in was loyalty, faithfulness, that kind of thing. Um, so was she being loyal to Naomi or was she being loyal to God? So these are all the questions that go in my head which probably don't have answers. Well, I think here's, here's, I think it's really helpful to say if the Bible wanted you to have one interpretation, it would have given you right. that one. Right. And I think in general, I think that's like we talked about last week, I'm not sure the Bible is always interested in one answer as if that would solve all our problems anyway. And we wouldn't think about it as much. Yeah, I because think if there's... you get the answers and it's like, okay, I know that, so I'm not going to ponder that anymore. Yeah, I think that's a, I, it's a great response. I, I wonder, does anybody else have thoughts, creative or otherwise, to this now? Because I think that's really, really helpful. Isn't that what they did then? Like up and go? Uh, well, beyond just saying, okay, let's go, throw in a bag and go. Yeah. There had to be some planning. Yeah. Yeah, like is that the cultural norm? Well, and food right. sources were important too, right? But what I'm saying is... Wasn't it expected of a daughter-in-law to follow her mother-in-law? If she didn't have somewhere else to go. If yeah. she didn't have somewhere else to go. That was just culturally the way things were done. So, so I want to see, and remember the text answers that question for us. The answer is maybe. But remember that Naomi says, you go home. 
So if that's an expectation, she gets an out from the person who has the authority right. to hold her. Do you know what I mean? So, right. And remember that Orpah does go home. Right, it's never heard of again. Never heard of again. And Ruth doesn't. So then, question why, is the tradition so strong she can't? Would she embarrass her family? Is her own family just, are they abusive, right? So, hey, better to be starving with this lady I have no obligation to than to go home. Um, is she compassionate and loyal? Does she love Naomi even when Naomi's unlovable? There is a famine, so maybe there's nothing to eat. So, hey, this gamble's better. I mean, these are, these are possible. Again, there's no straightforward answer to this. We have to just sort of speculate um, and I think it does matter how we choose to do that. Well, now, uh, they left Bethlehem, the breadbasket. Uh, yeah, that doesn't mean that, actually. <laughs> That's right. They were there in Moabite territory for a number of years. Yes. But, but hasn't the famine deceased? In other words, they're going back home because there's food there. Yeah, I think there is a deeper meaning, and if you didn't mind me saying, what we did not read this week was Ezra or Nehemiah, which say all foreign people are bad. All of them. And again, it's interesting to think that Ruth is a response to that, perhaps, that says, well, maybe not all of them. <laughs> not all of them. What, which would be like, sorry if you didn't mind me, I don't want to step on any toes here, but it would be like a response saying all Muslims are violent, saying not my friend Ahmed. So I don't know about the category, I don't know about the majority, but I have a, a counterexample which questions the rule. This, does that make sense? Yeah. May not question the probability, questions the rule. Uh, that could be one of the functions. John? Well, how, how was this book chosen to be one of the books in the Hebrew Bible? One and two... Um, see, uh, the, the question that came to my mind, there are a lot of messages in this. Yeah. And the question that came to my mind was the message first, and then they created the story around the message, or is this indeed a something that actually happened? So, I would think it's the uh, former. You think the message was there, and then this is like a literary expression. The message came one, or the point came first, and the story is second. They built the story around the message. Yeah, and of course, we, we, we don't know the answer to that, but I think it's, it's a great question. I think another thing we could ask is, was the story first, and then it exemplified a particular message, and that's why it was picked? Or was the story... You know, good storytelling, good storytelling always accentuates what happened to engage the audience, to take them somewhere, right? So it's, this is a really great question. In terms of why and how it was picked, that's murkier than we usually think, but this became, you know, the, the tradition of the Hebrew Bible is that uh, it was pretty well set by... Um, 86 of the Common Era. And, and just, a, just a quick point on this, at the time of Jesus, there wasn't one Judaism. There were many, just as there are many denominations in the Christian church. Now, I'll tell you, there's not as many kinds of Jews. Even today, there's like four, um, four major groups. Same here. You know, we, we know some of these people from the New Testament. There's the Sadducees, who are the priests. And um, they're in control of the political power and they own the temple, basically. And all they read was the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. That's their whole Bible. When the temple got destroyed in 70, the Sadducees sort of had nothing to do anymore. And they faded away. Just, they did. 
The liberal group at the time were the Pharisees, and they read this, but they also read what's called the writings, of which Ruth, well, depending, if you're Jewish, it's a writing. If you're, well, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, if you're Jewish, it's a writing. If you're Christian, it's a prophet. They read these other things, too. They read the prophets and the writings. Jesus was a Pharisee because he quotes Isaiah, and he quotes the Psalms. I mean, he was raised in the Pharisaical tradition. There's other people, like the Essenes, who read all kinds of stuff, including Ruth. These are the people who live in Qumran, who may, probably left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're super, super um, fundamentalists. They live like priests all the time. I mean, they, these people don't even do it all the time. They're celibate lifelong. Priests are only celibate when they're serving at the, at the altar or in the sanctuary. These people did it every day. Right? But they had, actually, they were reading these and other things that we don't read. The Dead Sea Scrolls are full of stuff we don't read. Um, these are three major groups, and then there's a Jewish group called the Zealots that could have been any one of those, but they were really trying to overthrow Rome. Now, uh, in 70, when the temple got destroyed, most scholars think these people, or a group of them, ended up founding what we'd call rabbinical Judaism. And they sort of intentionally did this um, in a city called Yavna, or Jamnia, if you were to do it in Latin. And um, around about 86, they decided what the Jewish Bible was going to be at Yavna or Jamnia. But they'd already been, see these people had been reading that for some time already. You know, so really what it is is that's when it congealed or concretized. Why'd they pick Ruth? Again, we don't, we don't have notes from that meeting. One help is the sacred names there. Another help is that it interfaces with a lot of other uh, stories, particularly when we get around Leverite marriage, which is a really weird thing we'll talk about in just a sec. Any other thoughts on why Ruth went, or do you want to explore a couple of the, the themes here, including Leverite marriage and what happens with Boaz? I would tell you another guiding question for Ruth. is why Boaz take her? <laughs> I mean, that's not a thinly veiled question in the book. That's right up in front of your face. Because remember, the other relative doesn't want her. Well, he does initially, and then he finds out what it's going to cost him, and he says, no, thank you. Right? Can I talk about Leverite marriage? Leverite marriage is going to sound really bizarre, and I just want to make sure we, we get it. It's based on the idea that the firstborn, and, and the big word we have for this when we talk about the Bible, is primogenitor. The firstborn son is the most important person in the family. They're going to carry the ancestral name, the family land, etc. Contrary to popular opinion, the firstborn son does not get twice the resources. The firstborn son gets 90% of the inheritance. The secondborn son gets 10%. Girls get zero. Um, you may know that Henry VIII was the secondborn son. <laughs> His older brother was supposed to be king, but he got sick and died. Um, Henry VIII because he was not going to be the king, he was second born, was going to be a bishop. Because <laughs> that's what you did with second born kids. Right? That's how they could have religious power, which was political, without threatening primogenitor. So Henry VIII went to theology school. When Arthur died, then he became <coughs> Arthur, if that sort of makes sense, which is why explains a little bit of his kooky theology as he was trained formally. So when you hear that Thomas More wrote in defense of the seven sacraments, not necessarily. Um, this is why Jacob is so mad about the birthright. Jacob and Esau. Because Esau, I mean Jacob was fighting to be born first and he lost. 
And he spent the rest of his life trying to be this guy, and of course you can never really do that. My, my, my daughter's really upset she can never be older than Danny. <laughs> Even if she tries hard. I mean, that's the story of Jacob and Esau, right? And that's what's riding on it. So the name went with the firstborn, and the secondborn was second rate. So there's this sort of rule or this concept that shows up. And to be honest with you, we don't really know if anybody ever quite did this, even though we find it in the Torah. We know people intentionally didn't do it. Leatherite marriage. Here's how it works. Um, your, your firstborn son gets married and doesn't have a firstborn son. See, once he has a firstborn son, that's the family. Does that sort of make sense? And, 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 and for us, it's not just commodity, because we move around. In, in, in Israel, you, your name is based on your land. You would never sell your land, ever, because that's like selling your soul. You might mortgage it, but the Torah says you get it back in 50 years. You get it back in the Jubilee. And that's because if you don't get it back, you've lost your identity. So, so you might be an indentured servant for a bit, but you're supposed to get your land back. That's why it's a huge deal in Jeremiah that his cousin sells the land. His cousin has sold his soul. That, you don't do that. The, the firstborn son gets the land, gets the family identity, keeps the family soul, if that makes sense. The secondborn son doesn't get it. So that's so ingrained and so important that here's the rule. Firstborn son gets married, has no kid, dies. There goes the name and the future and the soul of the family. So, secondborn son, thirdborn son, cousin, what they're supposed to do, <laughs> this is really complicated. Let's just pretend, is the circle the son or the square? I don't remember. Well, the circles are, are all men, okay? Here's firstborn son, takes a wife, dies, no kids. Secondborn son, or closest male relative, supposed to... Mary is not the right word. I want to make sure you know this. Supposed to impregnate woman. Impregnate woman so that she can have a son. The son she has will take the place of her dead husband. She won't be married to her son. It's not like that. But what she's supposed to do is make another son to replace her dead husband. And you see that in the story because when Ruth has the babies, she doesn't nurse them. Naomi does. And Let so, me, and, yeah. And the second son still gets nothing from that. Oh boy, let me tell you what. When the firstborn son dies... The 90% goes here. Oh, okay. But when you have this baby, the 90% goes there. So So when you do this, you yeah. forfeit the inheritance back. <laughs> and you have to do it because it's the law. And you gotta do it. Now now you see why yeah. in the Judah and Tamar story. Onan does not want to have a baby with Tamar. Onan's going to get all the goods. Unless he has a son. And then he's going to lose all the goods again. You see how that goes. There is no incentive if you are son number two to do this. Oh, it's at. <laughs> it's like one of those things that's so peculiar it must have actually happened. Well, yeah. we don't. I mean, I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> well, you know, it's not actually that weird, Lila. When you think about, and if you've seen Braveheart or you've heard this before, you know, there's this the prima nocta, mm -hmm. the noble of the land gets to um, have the conjugal rights the day of the wedding, um, so that. You know, they're all related to the noble, which means they own even more stuff than they already own. That actually did happen, and that's super weird, don't you think? So, so 
not really sure about how widespread this was because you read that and you're like, what? <laughs> like that that's like that's like a Game of Thrones episode. Like yeah. but bizarre. <laughs> but again, you can see why no one wanted to do that. Nobody wanted to do that. This is why, right, when when um, Elimelech dies, the, the nearest relative wants the land. But if he's got to marry Ruth and she has a son, the son doesn't the son gets the land and and the son can also get stuff from the dad. <laughs> now that's just bizarre, isn't it? What that would mean, right, is if the nearest relative has this kid, the kid gets the stuff and the kid gets the inheritance from the dad. That is to say, if you do this, Boaz does this, he loses everything for someone who's not even considered his own child. But he still gets to keep his stuff, right? Until he dies. But his name disappears. Boaz's goods are going to all pass to Ruth's child. Because by having a child with Ruth, Boaz is replacing himself in the line of succession. But no one would think that Boaz with Ruth is, was Ruth's dad. Everybody would think the kid that Ruth would have with Boaz is Elimelech's son. I know that's super weird because the facts of the case aren't so, but that's how Leverite marriage quote-unquote worked. So he didn't have other wives with other sons? Don't know. Would take his property? No, even if he did, he'd, he'd forfeit it because by having this kid... He's put himself down the pecking order. Well, isn't, wouldn't it be Mahalon's son? No. If Boaz has a kid with Ruth, the kid is Mahlon. <laughs> Not Mahlon's son. It's him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so Mahlon if continues. The family Mahlon continues. continues. That's it. Can I ask a question about this? Okay, so Mahlon <laughs> so continues. Yes, that's it. Okay, now. It's like a way of re resurrecting somebody. Right, so you've got Mahlon and Ruth. Yeah. Can Mahlon, the new Mahlon, can he marry? Ruth? No. Oh, anybody? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he will definitely marry, but he won't marry his wife, who's really his mother. Right. See, I mean, that's super weird. <laughs> I mean, wow. listen, I, 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 I hope you don't think I'm blowing smoke here. The story reads just like this. The babies go to Naomi. She's old. She can't nurse those babies. That's symbolic. Yeah. So what happened to the Limelech's land when they left? Was it, what happened to that land? One would hope that the family tended it so that they could have... Um, they could, because here's the funny thing: women can't possess land. So Naomi's out of luck with the land. Temporarily. See, if Naomi ended up dying and there's no male relatives, it would go to the closest male relative, which is why the guy initially wants the land until he realizes Ruth is attached to the land. Well, see, again, as long as she's alive, if she can produce a son, then it can stay in the, it can sort of stay in her family so, unit. Until she's dead, literally, it stays in her family. That's sort of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. I know, that's weird, isn't it? Well, we don't, you know, I think we, we've got to look at the, 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 the period of history and, and, and the context before we say it's weird. I just think it's weird. I mean, <laughs> even, even then I think it's weird. I mean, that's so complicated and strange, right? But again, it is based on a totally different understanding of land than we have and family identity than we have and a fundamental conviction that the firstborn son is more important than anybody else. So this, was this driven by some benefit to the common good of the community? Well, I, I mean, everything's got benefits and minuses, even if they're hard to see. It just seems to be the system in place. 
And now you see why Naomi changes her name from like happiness to bitterness. Remember, your name is who you are. <laughs> she was happy, and now she is bitter. Mara. Boy, I know, it's, I, I, that T shouldn't be there. It's not Levitt right, it's Levitt right. Okay. All right, so that's really weird. And again, remember, you got to read the story about Judah. And what do you know? It's a story about a foreigner again. Tamar is a Canaanite. She is not Hebrew. Judah is actually a bad father for a lot of reasons. But remember that actually fathers don't pick the wives, mothers do. So um, what Judah's wife is doing by allowing his son to marry a Canaanite is not okay. And notice that Er is so wicked that God just puts him to death. Now, who knows what that means? Onan, right, traditionally he gets accused of the sin of masturbation, but that's not it, right? Really, the problem is he's having conjugal visits with Ruth, but not accepting, I mean, not with Ruth, but with Tamar, but won't accept the responsibility of how that's supposed to work. And for that reason, he's wicked because he's using her like a commodity. And then you can understand why Judah doesn't want to marry his third son to a woman. I mean, you know, you start to worry what will happen to him too. God's killed two boys. And you want your third to marry that? Notice that she's real tricky. She's real tricky because she dresses up like a prostitute. You notice that Judah's like, oh, hey, prostitute, great idea, right? (laughs) uh, There's a little bit of morality missing from the tale, right? Doesn't think twice about it at all. And and then, of course, right, she ends up pregnant. He's going to burn her alive. and, and, And then she says, well, you're the dad, right? And he says, she's more righteous than I am. That's a funny word, righteous, because... She was a prostitute. (laughs) So you have to realize when we use these words like righteousness, they're not always like piety terms. Righteous in in Hebrew Bible, the word is actually tzedakah. This is the practice of sharing money with people. It's called tzedakah. Little children get these little banks and they put money in and that goes to like charitable organizations. Really, this, this means righteous, but not in the sense of piety, but in the sense of what's just. Tamar is trying to preserve my family name by bearing a son to take heir's place, and she's more just in following that concept than I as the dad am. Even though she does it in a way we would judge to be like really not good. <laughs> By the way, Moab itself comes from the same place. I don't know if you remember this. After Sodom and Gomorrah blow up, there's Lot and he's got two daughters. The daughters get the dad drunk so that they can have kids. That's incestuous. One of the kids is Moab. That's where it comes from. Okay, and I just want you to know this story is based on that bizarre bit and then it gets even weirder. (laughs) So we talked about it already. Naomi says, you can go on home and for whatever reason, Ruth won't go. In fact, she clings to her. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Well, apparently that's a new thing that Ruth is now trading her gods for Naomi's. They go back and there's this business about gleaning. And gleaning is something in the Torah. You can't harvest everything. You have to leave some stuff for poor people. I mean, it's a provision for people who are poor. What kind of people are poor? Widows. Orphans. Orphans. Because they can't own land. Don't you see? Women can't own land. They really can't own businesses. So, if you're a widow and your father won't take care of you, you're going to be a beggar or a prostitute. Those are the only ways you can survive. Or you can glean. (laughs) Notice, people aren't always nice to gleaners. In fact, Naomi says, 
Well, Mara says, be really careful. And Boaz tells his men, don't bother her. You know what he's really saying is don't rape her. Because gleaners got raped all the time. Don't you see, if you were a widow, you were a prostitute whether you wanted to be or not. There was no one to protect you. We've moved away from this, but again, women were absolute property. And if, if someone didn't own the woman, that was free property for the taking. Sexual property. They can tell that Boaz is being nice to Ruth, and they know there's some relationship. I mean, Naomi probably is actually very strategic in sending Ruth there. She's thinking about her survival. Boaz is nice, leaves not just like the wilty grapes with the, with the spots on them, leaves her some good grapes. In fact, she comes home, notice, with quite a measure of, of flour, and Naomi says, we can't keep all that. We've got to share it with people that don't get that benefit. Now, that's probably the best thing Naomi does. The most magnanimous gesture, right, is that when Ruth is given more than she should be able to glean, she shares that. Then she says this really interesting thing. Go to the threshing floor at night. Find Boaz where he's asleep. Uncover his feet and lay down at them. Now, get all dolled up first, right? Put on some big fat lipstick and some eyeliner and your nice lace and some perfume and lay down at his feet. Now, I don't want to jar you. In Hebrew, the word for feet is the word regal. Hebrew's got 10,000 words in it. Word, poor language. And Hebrew has, uh, really likes to resort to euphemisms very frequently. There's no word in Hebrew that means have sex. No word. The way you say that is, Adam came to know Eve, but also could mean he got to know her. <laughs> they lay down together is another one. There's no word in Hebrew for genitals, except for that one. <laughs> um, you won't find a Hebrew Bible scholar who will tell you this word means feet. They will all tell you it means feet. <laughs> so what does Ruth uncover? His genitals. And she lays down. Of course, strategically, if Boaz has sex with Ruth, they're married. <laughs> this is a concept we don't quite get because we have wedding ceremonies. If you read the Torah, if you read the Torah, you find this in Leviticus, if a man has sex with a virgin, he has to pay her father the bride price. The way you get married is by consummating the relationship. And if a man does that, he has to pay for her. So, it's very likely that what Naomi wants to have happen is to force Boaz to take Ruth on and in so doing, recreate her dead son. That may sound shallow, but please notice that's about her only choice to prevent being a prostitute. That sounds really calculating. It may not be right, but friends, it probably is. It's survival. Now, I would not want my daughter to have to do that, but the truth is I also would want my daughter to survive. This is where this is a hard bit. She doesn't do anything to Boaz. And by the way, the threshing floor is like the word in, um, maybe you, you learned this in 10th grade English when you read Hamlet. Hamlet tells Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery. And that's ambiguous. Does he actually mean go to a convent or does he mean go work in a brothel? A, the threshing floor is a place you work really hard. It's also a place where you play really hard, which is why, remember, Boaz says, when you leave, don't let anyone see you because they'll think you're a prostitute and Boaz is trying to preserve her reputation. There's an interesting word in Hebrew. It's the particle of um, 
X, uh, wait, I'm trying to remember what it is. It's this word, hene. It's usually translated, behold. Boaz woke up, and behold, Ruth was laying at his feet. How did she get there? What was she doing? That word can also be translated as boom shakalaka. Um, <laughs> Boaz woke up, and boom shakalaka, there's this lady by his feet. And Boaz, interestingly enough, says, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. Because you've got a closer relative than me. So let's see what he says first. Really, what Boaz ends up doing is clearing the way to do this sort of by choice instead of, well, by crook. (laughs) Does that make sense? In some ways, Boaz appears to be a very righteous person. He goes through the process. They go to the gate. There's no courts. The way villages work is the oldest person in town in general is the judge, the elders, and they hang out at the gate. Most people don't live in a city. They live outside. They only come in for commerce. Cities are really teeny tiny places because walls are tremendously difficult to build. You only come in during a siege or to conduct business and you leave, right? So the gate is a place where everybody has to come and go to do commerce, to shop, to get justice, etc. They go there, they formalize, Boaz can do this. Boaz has a kid with Ruth, it becomes Naomi's dead son, and David's related to that. I kind of rush through the end. That's sort of how it goes. So with this closer relative, he had the land in his possession at that time? Hard to know if he was being the steward of it, you know, if he was sort of mowing it and harvesting it. He clearly wants the land. I mean, everybody wants land. It's more important than money because this story is probably from a pre-monetary economy. So really, your worth is in land. But again, what he realizes is, I don't actually get the land, I lose. (laughs) If I have a kid with this lady, I lose. I don't gain. He loses all his land. He loses his stuff. Mm-hmm. Was there polygamy in those days? Absolutely. Well, you see, mm, so yes. Think that even Abraham has multiple wives? But I mean, could Boaz already have one? It's possible. It's also possible Boaz is a widow. It's possible Boaz, I mean, we don't know this, it's possible Boaz has a son. But when he does this, his new son, which is not really his son, gets his stuff instead of his real son. Why couldn't it be the other one? Because that's what against... I, what I mean is, why couldn't by, couldn't, by him marrying uh, Ruth and having a child, why couldn't then that property go directly to his firstborn son by a different wife? Because that's not the rule. <laughs> this is, again, why people don't want to do that. <laughs> Because the rule is, when the dead son is restored, he gets the double stuff. I mean, again, you'll read different interpretations of this, but, but again, this guy's dead, here's the lady, she has a son through this guy, who could have a wife and already have sons, but if they have that son, he becomes son number one to replace this one, but also from that one. So, he gets... That guy's stuff, and that guy's stuff too. But what, so that guy's stuff wasn't separate, like plantation A and plantation B. No, I, well, I don't think so. B? It's it's murky, but probably not. Because think about the so rel- Boaz was on Naomi's land. No, no. What I mean is, pretend like you say, pretend this person, this guy, has plantation A, and this one has B. So. Okay, look, all he's going to get is plantation A, right? No big deal. Except, it's very possible this also gets the B. Instead of firstborn kid. It's hazy how that worked. I just want to say that's possible, which would explain why closest relative don't want to do it. Alternative is, no, he only gets A, and his oldest son gets the B. Well, why wouldn't he want to do it? Because he has to pay for Ruth the rest of his life. 
you you have to support. You have to support. You have to feed her. Which is why, remember, in Judaism, and this changed a bit, but in Judaism, you had to pay for a wife. She didn't pay you to marry. In the European system, it worked the other way. There was a dowry given to the groom. But apparently, biblically, the groom pays for the bride. Who does he pay? The father. Why? To compensate him for having raised a commodity that can never accrue revenue. Like Women are a bad investment. Yeah, then that's it. Mike, in 86, that's when all of this was kind of... That's when the, 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 when, when, the, when the Jewish Bible was kind of firmed up. Firmed up. As in what's in and what's out. And Ruth is the last book. No, no, no. Esther's the very last book. Okay. Ruth is a... Is, well, when, did Ruth, when did Ruth become part of the Jewish Bible this year, along with everything else? Were people reading it before then? Yes. When was it written and how many people were reading it ahead of this? We don't know that. What are the rabbis trying to tell the rest of I don't know because that decision wasn't made analytically. Like I said, there's no notes that said we included Ruth in the Bible because of this. I know, but why would you think that they would include? Oh, what's, the, what's their message to the congregation? Well, I think a strong message from Ruth is, I think the the good moral people in Ruth, sorry, are Ruth and Boaz. I think part of the message of Ruth is these people aren't so bad. Foreign people aren't bad. In fact, they can be exemplary. I mean, contrast Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is the Hebrew person. Boy, and she's just bitter. <laughs> Again, I think Ruth, at least I can tell you how it functions in the Bible. I don't know what their intention was, but I think Ruth is a counterpoint to Ezra and Nehemiah. And I think so is Tamar, the Canaanite. She's more righteous than Judah. Just. Ruth is more righteous than Naomi. I think they're trying to say foreign people not also bad. Not all of them. I think another function is about Boaz, who is more than faithful to the Torah, even at his own expense. So, wow, that's a real strong rabbinic message. If you're a rabbi, you don't follow the Torah because it's to your advantage. You follow it because it's right. And that's what Boaz does. Out of curiosity, so if you were, so you've got Ruth written in Hebrew, okay? Yeah. Now, there's notes to the side written by... Yeah, so you're talking about the Talmud, yes. right? In the Talmud, you've got four layers of text. You've got the Bible, as we read it, and right next to that is written an interpretation by some rabbis, and then you've got some interpretation on the interpretation by different rabbis, and then you've got sometimes some midrash, which is like, well, he, the Bible doesn't say this, but it probably happened like this. Yeah? So, if you were to read the interpretations, um, where would you... Read? You'd get all kinds of different thoughts. I mean, how much do you want to read? They've been making that... I mean, the, the, the Talmud's a pretty fat book, I want you to know, right? Just to give you a perspective, if this is the Bible, the rabbinic commentary would be like two VCRs, and then if you put the commentary on the commentary, which would also be on that page, now we're talking about a width that big of the volume. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? That's what you do at, at when you do Talmud Torah, when you study the Torah, that's what you do. And Interestingly enough, I've told you this before, rabbis are never afraid to disagree with each other. So a lot of times, what you'll, what you'll read here is like, Hillel says, this is all about obedience, but Akiva says, this is all about survival. <laughs> Jewish people are not afraid to disagree with each other. Which I want to say, I think is part of why it's helpful to think about this being a counter voice to Ezra and Nehemiah because Jewish people aren't afraid to disagree. And, and, and the truth is, hey, sometimes we are afraid of foreign people and what they'll do to our customs. But, and maybe legitimately so, sometimes, but not always. <laughs> maybe also there are certain universal truths. 
among people, no matter who you are. Loyalty. Yeah, fidelity. Yeah. And see, that this starts to matter then here. We come back to, we make choices. With things so bad in Moab that Ruth would have gone anywhere. Or, does Ruth realize Naomi's only hope of surviving was through her and she was willing to dedicate her life? They're both possible. They mean different things for us, don't they? Was it just that she was doing what she was expected and she'd be ashamed to go home? That's a real possibility. You know that story in your own life. There's things you'd be ashamed to tell your parents you did, even if you thought they were right at the time, because, well, they didn't expect that of you. Well, I'd say that for myself anyway. Maybe it is just about food. Maybe there's a famine in in uh, Moab, so they've got to go to Bethlehem. Or you're not safe. Maybe when Ruth's father married her off, he said, don't come back. I won't take care of you. That's possible. Don't know. There are countries in the world, right, where that happens. Or families in the world. Right, where those are the norms. Um, I did promise I'd tell you this real fast. So, it's true that in Hebrew, this word means the house. The, the bait is the house of bread. <laughs> that means bread. So, house of bread, bread basket. By the way, Bethlehem is no big bread basket. It's tiny. It's a little bitty place. You can go there now. It's in pal- Palestinian control. There's a big wall between it and Israel, like the Berlin Wall. Bethlehem's not a Hebrew word, though. (laughs) It's actually not a Moabite word, either. The people who lived in Bethlehem were these people called the Jebusites. And um, what's interesting is David's from Bethlehem, and David's from Jebusite country. And even though Hebrew and Jebusite are the same root language, like their sister languages, maybe you know this about Arabic, Arabic and Hebrew are both Semitic languages, they both function really similarly. Like most words have three consonants. Vowels are iffy. But like three consonants is the root of all words in Hebrew and Arabic pretty much. Same, um, same in the Jebusite world. Well, in the Jebusite language, Beth means house. So that's right. But uh, Lehem doesn't mean bread. It's the name of the god Lehem. <laughs> so guess what they had in Bethlehem? A temple to the god Lehem. And that's where he lived. This becomes important when we talk about David because, you know, David was the one who had the idea of building a temple. Solomon built it, but it's David's idea. If you read the Torah, God says, don't build me any temple and don't build an altar with any hewn rocks. That's how God instructs Moses. You know what they have instead of a temple is a tabernacle, and it's always on the move to remind the people that God doesn't live in one spot. God is everywhere. Um seems like David grew up with some Jebusite ideas about how God is to be worshipped and built a house not to Lehem, but built a house to the God of Israel. If that was Lehem, was a pagan god. Canaanite, yeah, I mean, you, a pagan's fine. But, uh, Canaanite. Uh, why is it so important that Jesus be born here? Because well, I think the thing is, right, yeah, it's a great question, and, and keep in mind what's funny, because we read the genealogy of Jesus, and pay really careful attention to this. Which one of Jesus' parents is related to David? Joseph. Is Jesus related to Joseph? Nope. <laughs> well, the story says no, not. It says this not Joseph's baby. So why all that genealogy? Of course, I think the idea is to connect... Jesus to the beloved of God, to David, to somebody who's going to guide and lead like a good king would do. But please notice, this is where it becomes really important. We can say, oh no, like it's really about factuality 
or we can say it's about what he represents. And it can always be both, but I would ask you which one's more important. And we always have to make that choice. Again, Jesus and Joseph are not related. Sorry, they're not. <laughs> so Joseph's lineage means diddly squat, really. Mary's not related to David. <coughs> not that we know of. And by the way, that's proof. You know, Judaism's matriarchal now. Like you're Jewish through your mother. Not so back then. That change happened around like 900 AD or CE. I don't remember why, but it happened around then. It was patriarchal. If your dad was a Jew, you were a Jew until that period, 800, 900. Otherwise, it would have traced Mary. I mean, you, yeah, you, you, you yeah. see. That, that's the deal. Notice, interestingly enough, Ruth shows up in Matthew, and so does Tamar. Um, they don't show up in Luke. <laughs> if you read Luke's genealogy, they don't show up. In fact, no women show up in Luke's genealogy. Yes, sir. Bethlehem and, 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 and Jerusalem, are they in the old Judea? Yeah, and, and remember, when we went to Jerusalem, Beth, you can see Bethlehem from the wall. It's like a stone's throw. So, so really, you're thinking about a distance of about three miles. And remember, this, this is helpful to know, Jerusalem, when David conquered it, the capital of the whole country was the size of four city blocks. Four city blocks. It's much bigger now. The Crusader Wall is bigger. But the city of David, where we toured, right? city of David toured, four blocks. And that's bigger than Bethlehem. So if you're thinking really small potatoes here. Well, they probably only had one in then, right? That's why it was so crowded. Well, funny. We'll talk about that later. Uh, we're going to talk about the end business later. Now, now remember, folks, I don't want to bother you with all of this, and I don't think you have to even buy any of this that I'm telling you. I just want you to see that there's options and choices. And we don't always know why because the story doesn't say why. But I want you to see we've got lots of choices. In the end, this stuff is really weird and now you know how it works and why people want to do it, whatever. I don't know that it necessarily, it actually makes him all the more virtuous. Don't you see? I think it, it enhances the possible meaning, doesn't detract from it. So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. I think Ruth was courageous. That's what I get from her. And plus the journey they took. Yeah. That, that could have been easy. Yeah, for two women who once again, right? How still... far was that journey? Yeah. Was it three miles? or? Well, we didn't know quite where Moab they were. These aren't far off places. I mean, again, the language is so related, so related uh, that it's not geographically far. Uh, beyond that, I mean, 30 miles? We're not sure. 100 miles, maybe? Depends where in Moab you were. That's a long walk. Four days. <laughs> yeah, you average 25 miles a day. That's what you do. Yep. We don't. That's what they did. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks for playing along. We're right at 1030. Um, see you next week. We'll talk about Chronicles.